uh, dear congregation, again, as we take up our study of the Catechism, I want to back up, as it were, to remind you of one of the fundamental truths that we confess in this church. Uh, even as we would describe ourselves as a Reformed church and as a confessional church, we confess that the confessions that we have are statements of what Scripture teaches. So that our creedal statements, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed that we confess in our Sunday evening service, but also the confessions that we have, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, are human statements, right? Fallible statements of an infallible document. And that's very important, isn't it? That we understand that Scripture is the infallible document that stands at the head of this church. That is the, the, the governing principle of faith and practice. It is the supreme judge of everything that we say and do in this church. Now, when it comes to the next question of, well, what does that Scripture teach? And what do you as a church of God, what do you understand the Scriptures to teach? Then we have our confessional statements which give us that. And so we see our statements, our confessional and our creeds, as, remember what Paul said, a form of sound words. Remember, we, we talked about that when we began the Apostles' Creed, that our faith is in Christ, in the person and work of Christ, but it's in Christ as defined for us, because, again, people believe in all sorts of Jesus, you know, the Jesus of liberal Churches and liberal theology is quite different from the Jesus we believe in, right? Which Jesus? Which Jesus do you believe in? Well, our confessions articulate and define for us that statement. And they are a form of sound words that define the content of our faith. And they are statements of what Scripture teaches. But now we come in the Apostles' Creed to this statement. We confess that we believe in Jesus Christ... He's the only begotten Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. We considered all those things. But now the, the, the creed gives us these words, he descended into hell. And naturally, as, as Reformed people, and this is a, a very good reflex, we ask ourselves, where does the Bible teach that? That Jesus descended into hell. There doesn't if you kind of scroll through your knowledge of Scripture, right, you, you can't think of a place where the Scripture actually teaches us that Jesus descended into hell. I always found it kind of humorous and interesting that when R.C. Sproul would confess the creed, he would say, uh, he would say all the things that we said previously, he was crucified, dead, and buried. Then he would say, he descended into hell, asterisk. And he would put a little asterisk after that because he, he wanted to kind of qualify that statement. Another theologian, a, a wonderful, a good man, Wayne Grudem, will not say this when they confess the Apostles' Creed in, in the church. And if he's leading worship, he will instruct the congregation, do not say those words. He descended into hell. They've, they've struck those words from the creed because he says there is no scripture that teaches that doctrine, that Jesus descended into hell. Now, in the Reformed churches, we have not struck this line from the creed. We have kept it in the creed. And yet, we have, we have shifted from what the original authors of the Apostles' Creed meant by it. 
We, in the Reformed churches, again, going back to the time of the Reformation, especially Calvin, not so much Luther. Uh, Luther kept more of a traditional idea, but Calvin especially, redefined this term. Calvin said, let's not throw out the term, but we're going to redefine it with a more biblical meaning. Now you say, well, is that fair? Is that fair to take the words of the Apostles' Creed and to understand them in a way different from what the original author meant it to be? Well, now we never do that with Scripture, right? Whenever we understand and interpret Scripture, that's our goal, right? To understand what did the original author intend by these words. And of course, ultimately, right, we're trying to get what did the ultimate original author with a capital A, right, mean when he gave us these words. But this is important now that as we come to the Apostles' Creed, we recognize that this is a human document and a fallible document. And that what the original authors meant by descended into hell is not a biblical idea. We don't disagree with Wayne Grudem on that point. But the Reformed Fathers have decided that we will interpret that word in a different way, in a very biblical way. And that is what I hope to explain to you this evening. Now, before I do that, let me just say, what did the authors originally mean by this word, these words, he descended into hell? Well, you can find that meaning uh, explained in the Roman Catholic Church today. And again, it's not that all the original or all the old church fathers, and again, when I, when I say church fathers, I mean the men way back, you know, way back in the three, four, five hundreds, back in the time of Augustine, right, and, and others. But many of the, of the, of the men back then taught the existence of something called Limbus Petrum. And I put that name on the uh, Limbus Petrum on the outline there. And Limbus Petrum is called, is the place of the fathers. And in Roman Catholic theology, they, they teach that when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the other saints of the Old Testament died, they went to this place called Limbus Petrum. Now, it was not a place of suffering, but you might say it was a kind of holding place. It was kind of a holding place where they went until Jesus died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and declared victory over death and hell and sin. And then Jesus went to Limbus Petrum. And by went now, we mean literally. He, he went to this place. And he announced his victory that he achieved for his people on the cross and in the empty grave. And he brought all those Old Testament saints out of Limbus Patrum and brought them in triumph into heaven. Now, it sounds very reasonable, right? But again, it's nowhere taught in Scripture. And so as the Reformed believers, we've never really even given at the time of day. I don't know of any Reformed person who would ever say there is such a thing. As eminent as it makes sense to our minds, right? It's just not taught in Scripture. So we reject that doctrine. And all evangelicals have joined in rejecting Limbus Petrum. But what then, what then is this? If, it's, if it means, the, what, the, uh, if it means what, the, what it was originally intended to mean, right? And as the Roman Catholics now teach, then Ursinus, and again, Ursinus is one of the authors of the Catechism, he very clearly points out in his commentary on the Catechism, that if it means the idea of limbus patrum, then it contradicts what Jesus said on the cross of it is finished. Because Jesus said his work of redemption was finished on the cross. And yet, there, according to Roman Catholic theology, Jesus still had something to do yet. 
he still had to go to Limbus Patrum and rescue all these Old Testament saints and bring them out of Limbus Patrum and bring them to heaven. Now, the Roman Catholics would disagree with that. And at any rate, my point, though, is that even the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, Ursinus and Olivianus, knew that they were interpreting this, this article of the creed, descended into hell, in a way then different than what it was originally intended to mean. And of course, we are allowed to do that because this is a fallible, the Apostles' Creed is a fallible human document, right? It is not the word of God. And that's important. That shows our respect for scripture, that, it, that scripture overrides the creed. And when the creed gives us an article that is not in scripture, we have the right either to reinterpret it or to strike it out completely. Now, of course, we want to do that very cautiously. We don't want to do that rashly. And yet the Reformed churches have agreed, and not even just the Reformed churches, but evangelical churches generally have agreed that this article is not in Scripture as it was originally intended. Well, this idea of Limbus Patrum then, this idea even that Jesus uh, visited a hell, has some uh, people have pointed to some scriptures as teaching this. And the first of these is Ephesians 4 and verse 9. And I'd just like to quickly look at these verses with you because it's important to see these verses and to understand them correctly. In Ephesians 4 and verse 9, we read, and Paul is speaking here about the ascension of Christ. Now this expression, he ascended, that is Jesus ascended, what does it mean except that he, that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? Well, what is meant there by the lower parts of the earth? Again, the Roman Catholics and many who agree with them would say that what happened was that Jesus ascended into heaven. But before he ascended into heaven, he went down into the lower parts of the earth. Roman Catholics would say that's Limbus Patrum. He went into Limbus Patrum. Others would have a different explanation and would say that uh, Jesus went into hell to announce his victory. I'll say something about that when I get to 1 Peter 3, 18, verse 20. But for now, Ephesians 4, verse 9 says the lower parts of the earth. Again, we understand that in its, its more natural meaning, right? Is that the fact that Jesus ascended up into heaven implies that he first descended down to earth and that he did all his saving work here on earth and that it doesn't mean anything more than that. The lowest parts of earth, right? Means that he came down to this earth, this sinful, cursed earth, and he did his work of atonement and then ascended up into heaven. Again, it would be pretty unreasonable to base your whole doctrine of Limbus Patrum on a verse like that, which doesn't really say anything about going to preach to the saints or, or to announce his victory or anything like that. Now, next, 1 Peter 3, 18 and 20. This text is much more difficult. In fact, many, as I studied this verse this week, have said this is the most difficult verse to understand in the Bible, and many just flat out confess they have no idea what it means. Martin Luther, for instance. Martin Luther is a very honest man. You have to love him for his honesty. He just says, I don't know what this verse means. And I think that's a good thing to say. But 1 Peter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, uh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, there's nothing difficult there. That's, that's Reformed theology or biblical theology, as we've seen already. But then in verse 19, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, 
during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now the Roman Catholics announce, ah, well, that's what, that's what he did. He went down into prison, right? In verse 19, he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, and he brought the Old Testament saints out of Limbus Patrum and up into heaven. But now, my friends, as difficult as this verse is, it can't mean that, because we're told who these spirits are in prison. We're told in verse 20, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So what Peter is saying here is that Jesus went to the spirits in prison and he proclaimed to them and he proclaimed to the disobedient, not the saints who were saved, but to the disobedient ones who had rebelled during the time of Noah. So the Roman Catholic understanding of that is, 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 is we can cross that off. It's not an option at this point. Now, what about in prison then? What does that mean? Now, Augustine, we have great respect for Augustine, and Augustine gave an interpretation of this verse, which continues to be held by some, and that is, he says that in verse 19, in which also he, that is Jesus, went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, that what happened there is the Lord Jesus Christ, through the person of Noah, in other words, in the person of Noah, preached to the people of Noah's time repentance from their sin and the coming of God's judgment in the flood. So that when it says that Christ went to the spirits in prison, it means that Christ went to that, the people of that time. And through Noah, that it wasn't Christ himself literally, but it was Christ preaching through Noah, he preached to the spirits in prison and announced to them the coming judgments of God. And some continue to hold this interpretation of the verse yet today. Now the Lutheran understanding of this verse is different. This is the third one in my list there, he preached. They put the emphasis on the word that he preached. And what the Lutherans and many others like them say is that Jesus physically went to hell and announced his victory before the devils and all the fallen angels there. And to all the wicked in hell, he announced his victory and proclaimed himself the victor. So that even though that the devil had, you might say, worked things together so that Jesus was crucified on the cross, that yet Jesus rose again, and he went to hell, and he announced his victory there. So that the descent into hell, in, in, the, in this Lutheran understanding, is not a, a form of a, a manifestation of Christ's humiliation, but Christ's exaltation. That it's actually the first step of Christ's exaltation. That he went to hell and, and announced and proclaimed his victory there over the devil and all his hosts. Now, again, it's a hard time to get that, uh, that theology from this verse because it, it seems to say that he went to the people of Noah's time, not so much that he went to the spirits in prison in hell, but that he went to the wicked of Noah's time to preach to them. Why would Jesus go and announce his victory just to them and, and not to all the people? Again, that's a, a problem with that understanding. Well, I'm going to leave that there. Uh, it's a very difficult verse to understand. Uh, I want to one more, look at one more verse with you, and that is in Acts 2, which actually we read this morning. But in Acts 2, in Peter's sermon, after the pouring out of the Spirit on the church there, you'll notice that Peter says twice. He's talking about Jesus in verse 25. So Acts 2 and verse 25, 
Peter is quoting David. He's quoting from the psalm where David says, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. So Peter here clearly understands that David isn't talking about himself, but he's prophesying about Christ. He's prophesying about Jesus. And in verse 27, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or to Hades, Hades in Greek, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And in verse 31, uh, he repeats that. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Well, it seems that the soul of Jesus was in Hades, this, this place of the dead. And that Peter is preaching here the triumph that God was not going to leave him there, but was going to bring him out of there. And so naturally the question that arises in our minds is, well, what was Jesus doing there in Hades? Well, again, the, the people who would disagree with our interpretation said, well, that is Jesus. He went to hell. Hades and hell are the same thing in their mind. And he went there to do, again, a variety of things, as I've already mentioned. Now, in, in our understanding of this, again, it's, it's not saying that Jesus went to hell, but that he went to Hades, which is the realm of the dead, the place of the dead, which, again, in the Old Testament was understood in a very, in a very uh, fuzzy way, right? They didn't have a clear understanding of heaven and hell, but that Jesus went, and Peter is just quoting this psalm here, that Jesus went to the place of the dead, but God did not leave him dead. God raised him to life again. And so again, no doctrine here of limbus patrum, no doctrine of Christ going there to announce his victory in hell, or so on. Again, just the idea that Jesus died, but God did not leave him there. Death did not gain the victory over him, but God raised him to life again. So these three verses then uh, are, are, are sometimes used to uh, defend this idea of, of, again, a variety of ideas, from limbus patrum to Christ announcing his victory in hell, and so on and so forth. But now our catechism. Our catechism does not take that understanding at all. So let's read question 44, as I've given it to you there, where our instructor asks, why does the creed add he descended into hell? And the answer is given to assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. Well, my friends, the Catechism and the Reformed tradition generally has said that by that phrase, descent into hell, we are referring to the suffering of Christ's soul. Christ's body was crucified, dead, and buried, as we had previously. But now the Catechism is going to focus especially on the suffering of Christ's soul. Notice, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul. And so the focus here is especially on the sufferings that Christ had in his soul. Now, of course, you can see even that this is departing from the original meaning of he descended into hell, because that wouldn't really make sense to say that he was crucified, dead, and buried, and then chronologically he descended into hell, right? Because his, his descent into hell, then on our understanding of it, would be when he was on the cross, so that it, would, it should say, was crucified, descended into hell, died, and was buried. 
But again, uh, we're going to say, uh, and, and we're allowed to do that, right, with these kinds of documents, that it's out of chronological order. And yet this is the meaning that we give to this phrase. He descended into hell. And of course, we know, my friends, that all the sufferings that the people of God deserved were poured out on Christ. And so if you can think of that this evening, my friends, and, and here again, we, we, we are far beyond what the human mind can comprehend. It's as if here we need to take our shoes off because we're on holy ground. But all the sufferings of hell were funneled, as it were, into a point and came down upon our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you understand that? Can we, can we fathom the depth of that? That all the sufferings that we would have endured on into eternity and eternity past, and eternity future, with its, without end, all that suffering is now concentrated on the head of our Savior. That's how we understand that as Jesus lay, or as he, as he, as he was nailed there to the cross of Calvary, that a, a darkness came upon him, a suffering came upon him that no human tongue can confess. Except in the words that Jesus himself gives us, and that's the words I chose for our text. Because we see, in a sense, hell coming down on Jesus in these words when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, my friends, is the suffering of hell. And why do I say that? Think with me a minute what Jesus will say to those people on his left hand on the last day of judgment. What will he say? Jesus will say on that day, depart from me, ye cursed, into hell, into the place prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart from me. Go away from me. In other words, separate yourself from me. And what does Christ say on the cross in these words? My God, my God, why have you separated yourself from me? And that, my friends, I say, is the suffering of hell come down upon the head of our Savior. And as our catechism focused on the sufferings, especially of soul, you can say, my friends, that all uh, the, 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 the weight of this suffering is caught up in that word, my, my God. It's not the God. It's not the God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, but it's my God. And my friends, Christ can say that in a way that you and I never can. My God, who I am joined in the, in the, in the delights of the Holy Trinity in a, in a happy, blessed union. My God. My God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me and departed from me? That, my friends, as I said, is a descent into hell. And that's a suffering of soul, isn't it? That's not any part of his body that experienced pain. That wasn't as the nail through his hands, right? Or the, the thorns on his brow. This is a suffering of the soul of Christ. 
And that's why I said at the beginning of the sermon that we come now into the very depth of Christ's humiliation. And we come to something that we cannot fathom. And I feel really at this point in the sermon that I have to, I have to stop even trying to describe this because human words cannot bring us into the depth of this suffering. God forsaken of God. What does that even mean? And so we put our hands on our mouth here, my friends, and we leave it. We leave it at that, that Christ descended into hell when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I put also on the outline, my friends, another catechism that Ursinus wrote where he asks the same question, what do you understand by his descent to hell? This is what's called Ursinus's larger catechism. And he says that he experienced in his soul and conscience, yet without despair, the pains of death and the horror of God's anger, by which the damned are driven to despair and eternally tormented. Notice this time, Ursinus qualifies it. He says, yet without despair. And Aquinas, I mean, uh, uh, Ursinus, I think, put that in there to reflect the, also the biblical teaching, right? That it was by God the Father's predetermined plan that Christ was delivered over to the death of the cross. And so Christ could never experience in his soul despair, right? That God had completely abandoned him because of that previous covenant that was between them for the salvation of his people in eternity past. Uh, congregation, you just, you, 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 we can only stammer, we can only say these things, right, with our own limited understanding of what a, what a vast mystery is before us when Christ uttered those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, I come then to my point of application in the first place, soul suffering. And my friends, the first thing I want to, I want to make clear is what is already given us in the catechism, Right? Because the catechism begins when it says to assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation. That teaches us, my friends, that the people of God can come into times in their life when they are so attacked by Satan, when they come into times of deepest dread. And I think we need to confess that that this is a possibility. My friends, God never promises his people that he will bring them on a path of roses with the light always shining brightly to heaven. And they'll go from one happiness and one joy to the next. All problems will be resolved and no pain and suffering will be their lot until God finally brings them happy and joyful and cheering into heaven. That is a lie, my friends. That is a lie. Our catechism recognizes times of deepest dread. And the scriptures speak so clearly of it. That's why I read for you Psalm 69 today, this evening, where David said, I sink in depths where none can stand. You see, that's the honest language of a saint, my friends. That's the honest language of a saint who has lived his life in this world. This world that is so often marked by tears and by pain and by suffering. And the Psalms recognize that. Suffering, sometimes it's brought upon us by temptation. That's what our catechism points out. 
to assure, me, to assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation. Sometimes the attacks of Satan trying to draw us into sin can bring us into these times where we, we feel like we're sinking in the mud. At other times, my friends, we have fallen into sin. We've given in to temptation. And this brings us into times of great dread. You could think of the Apostle uh, Peter when he denied the Savior three times, even with an oath. And we read that he went out and wept bitterly. He came into the place of the psalmist where he sank in depths where none can stand. Yes, as a result of his own sin, but still, all the same, he sunk in those depths. Sometimes, my friends, these dread and these sufferings come upon us for reasons completely unknown to us. We have a whole book of the Bible dedicated to this reality in the life of God's people that sometimes darkness descends on them for reason that they have no idea. They are not aware of having committed any sin that would have brought them into this darkness. And that is the book of Job. Job had no way of knowing that the, uh, of the discussion that had taken place between God and the devil in heaven. And yet he came into a time where he sank in depths where none can stand. Sometimes a feeling of divine abandonment the psalmist have phrases like, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Sometimes, my friends, we can have a fear of death. As we feel our body growing older and declining, we can, we can come into these depths when we think about death and all the suffering that it brings to us. David said, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. And a hundred other things, my friends, that bring the people of God into these times of suffering. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. I always am struck by the words of scripture when it talks about David when he returned to Ziklag and he found all his family and all his possessions had been carried off by a raiding band of marauders. And it said that David wept until he had no more power to weep. Now, my friends, I ask you, Maybe to the older ones. I think you know of what I'm speaking. I know I speak to people who've, who've, who've lost spouses. Who've come into times of great pain and suffering. Perhaps you wept until you had no more power to weep. That brings me to my second application, my friends. The suffering of Jesus. Because in all our sufferings, my friends... The catechism sets before us, and the scripture sets before us, the suffering of Jesus. And tonight you can ask, does Jesus know my suffering? Can Jesus possibly know? I mean, he was the God-man. Can he know my sufferings? And my friends, I can answer that with a single sentence. Jesus descended into hell. All the sufferings and the weight and the curse of hell itself came down upon the head of our Savior. And so I can assure you, my friends, that Jesus knows your suffering. I can say it this way. Jesus came down to this earth and he entered into your suffering. He carried your burden. He carried your burden. I believe I put that text under the third application that we have a great high priest
who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So here we have, my friends, the reality of the suffering of God's people, that God chooses in his own sovereign good pleasure to bring his people into times of darkness and of dread and of temptation and of pain. And we have here the fact, the reality given us in Scripture that God brought his own well-beloved son into the sufferings of hell itself. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And that brings me to my third point, because my friends, in our life, we can bring those two together. And it's the privilege of the people of God to take their suffering, to take the burden that they carry, to take their tears, and to lay them at the feet of Jesus Christ. To lay them at the feet of our good, great shepherd. And he knows those sufferings. He knows the burden that you carry. He went through hell. He descended into the sufferings and the pain of hell. And no suffering that we have here, and my friends, I don't say this to make light of your suffering, but I think you'll agree, won't you, that no suffering that we have in this life can possibly compare to the suffering of our Lord and Savior when he descended into hell. And so I believe, my friends, that there is a measure of comfort that can come to the suffering people of God when they take their sufferings and when they bring them to the sufferings of Christ, when they bring those two together, when they hear the Lord Jesus Christ saying, I'll enter that suffering for them. That's what Jesus agreed to do in eternity past. I will enter into that suffering. I will come under the pains of hell so that they might be delivered from it. The apostle says, if we endure, this is, this is 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. If we endure, and that word endure there is if we suffer, but we persist, we endure in our sufferings. If we suffer, we will also reign with him. My friends, if, if you're suffering this, this evening, if you're carrying a burden, maybe it's not known to any person, but I can speak to you today, my friends, that if you can lay that burden at the feet of the cross, if you can hear the Lord Jesus Christ entering into the pains of hell for you, for the sin that you committed, won't that lighten that burden a little bit? Won't it lighten that burden, my friends, to know that Christ entered into the pains of hell? And that if we endure, if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. And the day is coming when he will lift that burden off us. You know, Charles Spurgeon was a man. Let me end with this story. Charles Spurgeon was a man who suffered intensely. There was a moment, uh, there was a time in London when they built something called the Surrey, S-U-R-R-E-Y, the Surrey Gardens. And it had a fantastic auditorium in it that could hold 10,000 people. And Spurgeon at this time was only 25 years old, was becoming very popular as a preacher. And they decided since that the current building they were in could not hold the crowds who came to his preaching, that he would preach a sermon in the Surrey Gardens which was not a place devoted to any kind of religious worship. It was a place given, uh, built for amusement. They had a zoo there. They had uh, fountains. They had picnic tables. It was a, kind of like what we would call a park. 
Well, Spurgeon agreed to preach there, and he went there to preach. And on, on the day of the preaching, they said that uh, roughly twelve to 14,000 people were trying to crowd into this auditorium. So earnestly did they want to hear the preaching of Spurgeon. Well, uh, and when the service came, Spurgeon announced the hymn. They, they sang. They, they uh, read the scripture together. And then Spurgeon began to pray. And as Spurgeon began to pray, some mischief uh, doer in the crowd yelled, Fire! And, and, and another one, and again, these people were probably planted there. There was a great deal of opposition to Spurgeon using this place to preach in. Someone else cried, the balcony is falling. The galleries are collapsing. And people in desperate panic began to rush for the doors. They trampled all over each other. Now, there was nothing wrong with the building. The building was in perfect condition. There was no fire. And Spurgeon immediately began to cry out, it's, it's safe. There's no problem. But you know how that is, right? Once the panic began, it was in full swing. And by the end, uh, by the end of this panic, eight people had been trampled to death. And 28 people were taken away to hospitals for their injuries. My friends, I bring this story up to you, to you because after this took place, Spurgeon had a complete collapse. A physical, mental, and emotional collapse. He was destroyed by this event. When he heard that, 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 that all these people had died, he was, he was wrecked as a person. And it was months before he could come back in, uh, into the ministry. And yet there was a day when Spurgeon was, was again trying to heal, when God suddenly spoke to him in a powerful way. And you know what the words were? The words are in the book of Acts. We read it this morning. For him hath God highly exalted. And with those words, the Lord healed him. And he was given strength again to return to his pulpit. Now I tell you that story, my friends, simply to show you how all these sufferings, and Spurgeon describes it as horrific. He said, the blackness and the darkness came down upon me was agonizing beyond words. But with that simple verse, for him hath God highly exalted. Healed him. It was a touch of God upon him. And he was healed. And that's why I give you these words from Spurgeon at the bottom of the outline there where he tells suffering saints, think especially of the bloody sweat of Gethsemane, the wounds of Calvary, the dying thirst, the my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Think of all that. Get Christ's love to you burnt into your inmost consciousness. And in the strength of this, fear no difficulties, dread no tribulations, but march to your life battle as the heroes of old went to theirs, and you shall return with crowns of victory as they returned with theirs. My friends, let's bring all our suffering and all our pain to the foot of the cross and find triumph there. May God grant it for his name's sake. Let us pray. Lord, we confess this evening that we do suffer. And even, Lord, if we're experiencing now a time of, of security and of, of good health, and uh, maybe we aren't suffering. And yet we know, Lord, that the suffering is certainly in our future. And there will come times when darkness will come upon our soul, when we also will experience the pain and the suffering, perhaps of body, but certainly of soul. Lord, in those times, bring us to the cross of Christ. Open our ears to hear 
his cry. But she said with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And Lord, I pray that we would find a measure of comfort in those words, that we could be healed, and that we could take up the work that you have called us to do once again. Lord, remember those who grieve this evening. Remember those who carry burdens that are unknown to anyone else. Lord, will you lift them this evening? Will you give them eyes to see our crucified Savior? And I pray, Lord, that in all these afflicting times, we would run to the cross and find health, safety, and healing there. And Lord, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our great physician. Amen. Let's take that blue hymnal again and turn to number 455. 455. In the hour of trial, Jesus plead for me. And what follows in the four verses of 455 in the blue hymnal.
Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.